Good morning. Man, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's great to see you all, especially when it's raining and dreary outside. Uh, it's just good to know that so many of you would come out to worship the Lord. That is a precious thing. I'm glad that you're here and joining us. Thank you so much. So my name is Jason Averill. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And this summer, we have been in a sermon series. Sorry about that. I'll try to adjust it. We've been in a sermon series on theology. This is theology proper, the study of who God is. And last week, we went over uh, God as love. And this week, we're actually going over God as the just one. And next week, we will, we'll, <clears throat> sorry, next week, we end the sermon series with a look at God as the governor, as the provident one, the one who upholds all things and directs all things. So let's, let's pray, and then we can dive in. Father, Lord, many of us have come here for various reasons. We each have our own personal reasons for being here. We feel restless and we need the rest that you provide. We feel beat up by the world and we need you to rejuvenate us, to rebuild us in the gospel. Lord, we lack friendship and we need the community of godly people. Ultimately, Lord, though, the reason we are here is because you have drawn us here. You have drawn us here so that we might worship you, and in worshiping you, that we might know you better. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for drawing us here this morning. Jesus, we do ask that you lead us in worship. You are our, are our true worship leader. Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that you quiet our hearts, quiet our minds, quicken our souls, and illumine, illumine us to the great beauty of our glorious Savior. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, we've been bouncing around a lot. Uh, I said this last time, too, but like the nature of this sermon series is really that we're just all over the Bible. And so sometimes we're in uh, the Old Testament and sometimes we're in the New Testament and sometimes, you know, we spend a lot of time in the Psalms or in the prophets. Today, we're actually going to be spending some time in Romans, Romans chapter 3. And before we begin, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background on where we are, what's happening in the story of God's people. So, Romans was written by Paul, of course, if you didn't know that. And he wrote it at about 58, 59 AD. And this was after his third missionary journey. And he wrote it for a specific purpose. Okay, he noticed that there was a problem that was cropping up in many of the churches that he was planting, what <clears throat> had been planting. And that was that the Jews and the Gentiles 
had a really hard problem getting along. And so we see that in his letter to the Galatians. We see it in his letter to the Ephesians. We see it also here in his letter to the Romans. And in fact, this is the dominant theme, the major theme of the entire letter. Now, why was it such a big problem here in Rome? It was a problem everywhere, but it was especially big in Rome, and that was because of something that happened back in 49 AD. This would have been right before Paul was converted, probably. And you also see this in the Bible in Acts chapter 18. It's the Edict of Expulsion. Okay, so the Edict of Expulsion was proclaimed by Claudius, the Emperor Claudius. And what he said was, the, the Jews here in Rome won't stop fighting. They're fighting about somebody named Crestus. We don't really know who that is, he said. We know it to be Christ. But they're fighting amongst themselves. And it's getting violent. We can't tolerate it. All of the Jews have to go. All of them. So all of the Jews were kicked out of Rome. And so... What was left was a small, exclusively Gentile church. And this church, over the next eight years, grew and grew and grew. And of course, was exclusively Gentile. And then in 57 AD, the edict of expulsion was rescinded. And the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome. And as they came back into Rome... They, they really didn't like the Gentiles. They didn't like the Gentiles being so prominent in their church. You know, Gentiles were the outsiders. They had been taught all of their lives that they were unclean. They had been taught all of their lives that even to associate with them was an unholy thing. The Gentiles, for their part, looked at the Jews coming back in as unwelcome, very unwelcome. Here they had been going along, building up their church, proclaiming the gospel to the city of Rome for eight years. And the Jews were coming back and they were causing problems. They were being holier than thou, insisting on adherence to, to the Jewish law. And these people are coming together and each one of them, each group is feeling like they are the legitimate people of God. For the Jews, we're the people of God. He chose us. He gave us the scriptures. He gave us the law. We're the good ones. And for the Gentiles, we're the people of God. He chose us. They crucified Jesus. We wouldn't have done that. We're the good ones. And we actually hear this, this same refrain repeat itself throughout church history. You know, if you pay attention and if you read church history, you'll see this, that it always comes about with the legalistic crowd and the freedom in the gospel crowd. The legalists say, you're not a real Christian unless you're following the law and being very intentional about it. And the freedom in the gospel crowd tends to say, we don't need to follow the law. And there's this argument. And Paul addresses that same thing here, right here in Romans, where these two 
groups of people are coming back together, forging into one church. So let's stand as we turn to the scriptures this morning. We're reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God <clears throat> through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word stands forever. Let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. All men, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul responds to this argument between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we're going to look at that argument really in three different ways or three points. It's, of course, it's three points. It's a sermon. <laughs> we're going to look first at how all are under sin. And then we're going to look at God as the just one, that he is justice. And then we're going to look at God as the justifier. So all are under sin, God is just, and he is the justifier. So what does Paul mean that all are under sin? Look at verse 10, the second half. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one can say that they're righteous before God, says Paul. No one can stand before God in his own merits. Nobody is righteous. You Jews, you're not righteous. You Gentiles, you are not righteous. No one understands. What does that mean? Understands what? 
No one even understands what it means to be fully and truly righteous before God. Nobody on the face of the earth actually understands that. They all bring the bar a little bit too low. No one seeks God. Now, this is kind of a tricky one. We have a whole movement in the church called the seeker movements. And it's premised on the fact that people are actually seeking God. But Paul here says that nobody seeks God. No, nobody. And so how do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile the genuine thought that, and observation that there do seem to be some people that wander into church seeking God, and yet at the same time uh, that Paul says that nobody seeks God? Well, Sproul says this, but why does it seem to us that people do search after God? The great Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas wrestled with this particular question, and he gave us an insight. When we see people searching for things such as truth, peace of mind, eternal life, or happiness, they are searching for relief from their guilt. These are things that Christians know only God can give them. So we leap to the conclusion that since they are searching diligently for those things which only God can give them, they must therefore be searching for God. But it is precisely this in which man's sinfulness consists, says Aquinas, that man seeks for the benefits of God while fleeing from the person of God. That is, the people who are actually seeking for God or seem to be, those unbelievers, they're actually aware of their guilt and they're seeking a way to assuage it. They are not seeking the person of God because the person of God would terrify them because he is justice. They cannot stand before him. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 12. All have turned aside Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, no one does good. This is kind of hearkening back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says two things that kind of clarify the definition of sin and how we tend to lower it. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, says Jesus, anybody who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her. The standard, Jesus says, is not the action. It's the intention. The standard that we tend to look at, that the Jews tended to look at, was don't commit the action. And Jesus said, no, the standard's way up here. Way up here. It's don't even lust. He says it again when he says, you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you that if anyone is angry with his brother, he will be liable to the, <clears throat> to the fires of Gehenna. Again, don't commit murder seems pretty easy. Don't commit anger 
against your brother. It seems really, really hard and impossible. The standard is a lot higher than everyone thinks. So in verse 13, he goes on and he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their mouths should be full of prayer, should be full of praise, should be full of worship for who God is. And yet, their mouths are actually being used rather to sin, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to poison other people. That's what their mouths are being used for. And he goes on, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way, <clears throat> and the way of peace they have not known. If they were a boat, if they were a speedboat just flying down the lake, in their wake would be risen, <clears throat> would be ruin and misery. And then he ends, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That is, they do not respect God. They treat him as either he doesn't exist or as a vending machine, as something to go to when they want something. That's how they treat God. So why does Paul bring this up? Didn't they know this? Didn't they know this already? You know, this is like gospel 101 stuff. And you're right, they did know this. They had to have known it. In fact, the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection was in Acts chapter 2, is preached by Peter, and in it he said this, verse 23 of Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then he ends that sermon by saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They're very well acquainted with the fact that they are sinners. They're well acquainted with the fact that they cannot do right. And in fact, he spent the first two chapters of Romans proving this, both for Gentiles and then for Jews. They should have known. And they did know. So why was he saying it again? Why is he bringing this up again? Now I can think of at least three reasons. Everything's in threes as pastors. The first is, well, it's true. It's mentioned again and again in the Bible. In fact, whenever Paul does this long quote, that doesn't just come from one passage of the Bible. No, that comes from several passages of the Bible, at least ten. And they're all over. They're from various Psalms. They're from Isaiah. They're from Exodus. They're from Jeremiah. He's bringing up the entire width and breadth of Scripture that they know and saying, listen, listen. God has told you this again and again and again. You are not righteous. Do not put on airs. You see, they had forgotten. They had forgotten that. They had forgotten that before God, they actually had no standing. They had no righteousness. It didn't matter for the Jews that they had the law. 
That didn't matter. That didn't improve their standing with God. It didn't matter that the Gentiles didn't have the law because they had the law written on their hearts. Paul says just a few sentences earlier from this passage. No. They were acting as if individually and corporately they were righteous and they had forgotten that they have no standing before God. They had forgotten that. Do we forget this? Is that something we forget? We who have been steeped in the gospel week in, week out, day in, day out, do we forget that as well? Yes. Yes, of course we do. Anything that we look to for some sort of righteousness, some sort of way to improve our standing next to somebody else in the eyes of God or in our own eyes, some way that we think that we are superior to other people, that's how we do it. We've forgotten the basic lesson of the gospel, the thing that we need to go over again and again and again, that we have no righteousness before God. And we do it all the time. We look at our political party, the one that we're a part of, and we say, man, we are right. And we seriously doubt whether or not a member of the opposite party could actually be a Christian, could actually be saved by God. We look at this is a particular sin of, of Presbyterianism in the PCA. We look at our theology. Man, we have such perfect and right theology. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing that we do. And yet, it does not increase our righteousness at all. We have no standing before God. So where do you look for righteousness outside of Jesus. We would all do well to ask ourselves this question, to examine ourselves, to explore the answers to that, because you cannot trust in anything else other than Jesus. And you need to know where you're trusting in yourself. And that leads us to our third reason kind of transitions us to the second point of the sermon. Paul addresses this topic of total depravity, that everybody is sinful, that nobody has standing before God. Because both groups, sorry, I've been having a little tickle in my throat, an allergic reaction last night. Um, sorry. Both groups stood as guilty and condemned before the just God. They were on the same playing field. They were on the same level. They were both insisting that one group was higher. But they were actually on the same level. So let's read verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Yeah. Whatever the law says, whatever the law says, says Paul, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, so that everybody will be held to account by God. Paul says here, listen, you who have been taught the law, you are accountable to God for your sins. You are accountable to God for your lack of righteousness. If you choose to stand before him in your own righteousness, you are accountable to God for your sins. You aren't righteous. No one is. And he says to the Gentiles, listen, you who weren't taught the law, you bear the image of God. You bear the image of God, and the work of the law is written on your hearts, and you prove that you know it. And every mouth is stopped. Nobody can go before God and profess innocence. It cannot happen. That everyone who's ever lived and has ever will ever will live will stand before him and give an account. An account of what? An account of all their deeds. In fact, Jesus goes even farther than that. In Matthew chapter 12, he says that they'll be, they will have to account for even the idle words that they speak. Everything that you do, think, say. Everything. God the just one. God the judge. Everything will be held to account by him. Why? Well, I mean, the short and simple answer is that because God himself is it's, he's just. He has to hold people to account. Otherwise, he would not be who he is. And we're told that that's who he is throughout the entirety of Scripture. That he must punish sin. But I hear... You say, maybe not you in particular, but I've heard this question many, many times. But isn't God a God of love? We just heard last week that he is. And isn't the wrath of God kind of an outdated concept? Don't we just need to kind of put that one to bed because it really doesn't seem like a God of love and a God of wrath can really be the same person. The question I hear a lot, especially from non-Christians, and I want to respond to it gently. No. No. We aren't past the wrath and the justice of God. Why? For two reasons. This is who he is. It's who he's testified to us that he is. This is how he represents himself and we can't just set it aside. In fact, in Exodus chapter 34, he tells Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a, mer a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. By no means clear the guilty. He can't just set aside sin. He has to. He has to judge it. 
That is who he is. And we can't set aside the teaching of God's justice and his wrath towards sin just because it's unpopular or because it makes us uncomfortable. You know, as, fur as further kind of proof that this is who God is, one of the things that theologians look at is that every single human being on the face of the planet bears the image of God, marred, yes, broken, yes, but still there, still present. Everybody has the image of God on them. And when we view ourselves, particularly when people sin against us or sin against people that we love, we feel this deep longing in us for justice. We feel this longing for it to be put right. We have something in us that cries out for justice whenever we suffer this at the hands of other sinful people. And we see this in our, in our societies too. The fact that we have laws that proclaims that there's something about justice we value as humans. It's there. All of our most popular stories are centered around this. Where somebody suffers an injustice and then the rest of the story is about how that injustice is put right. I'm thinking, you know, about like the Count of Monte Cristo. That's all about it. He's put in prison unjustly. And the rest of the book is about him taking up the sword and seeking justice himself. Second, it's a component of God's goodness and love. You know, we, we like to pit God's wrath and God's love against each other like they're at war. But that's not really true. It's a component of God's love. It's a component and connected to his goodness. Think about it. We couldn't really say that God is good or loving if we say that he isn't just and wrathful. No, if he doesn't get angry at sin, if he doesn't get angry when people hurt other people, if he doesn't get anger, angry at the misery that other people cause by their actions, he would not be worthy of worship. The only way that he would get angry, though, is if he actually loved the people who were sinned against. No. Wrath is not the opposite of love. Justice is not the opposite of love. They're not in conflict. Apathy is the opposite of love. Not caring what happens. No. It's not even just that it's a component of his goodness and love. It's actually a good thing in and of itself. It's good that he is just and judges people and is wrathful against sin. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody, nobody gets away with anything. Everybody gets justice in the end. Everybody. 
I know this is a big point. It might seem like I'm belaboring it, but it's, it's an important point because it's a point that we as a society are trying to move past. Even within the church, we're trying to move past it. And that is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. There is a, a, there is, sorry, not was, he still is living. A uh, Croatian theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. Now, he's written a lot about nonviolence and how people are to respond, how believers are to respond to violence perpetrated against them. And he wrote this book that was based on an essay that he had previously written in which he proves just systematically throughout the essay as much as you can that the idea that a God who won't judge actually forces people to take up the sword and seek justice themselves. It's popularly said that the idea of a God who judges, the idea of a God who is wrathful against sin, actually motivates people to sin or motivates people to treat people unfairly. That's kind of the popular talking point among non-Christians when they look at the wrathful God of the Bible. And Miroslav Volf says, no, that's not true. It's not even little true. In fact, the only way, he says, that you can truly put down the sword is if you believe that God will take it up in judgment. Hear what he says at the end of his paper. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. Now, keep in mind that Miroslav Volf is a Croatian. He grew up in Yugoslavia. He saw many, many wars. He saw many of his countrymen, many of his brothers die at the hands of other people. He was persecuted because he was one of the only Christians there, and it was largely a communist state. And he saw many of his brethren, his brother Christians, come under persecution as well. So that's where he's coming from. He continues... To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, that is, divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit, the topic of your lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence, the thesis of it. We should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. 
And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. What is he saying there? He's saying if you go to somebody who has suffered real injustice and you tell them, don't retaliate because God loves everybody, that is not going to move them one bit. No. The only way in his experience, which is great, to get people to turn, put down the sword and turn the other cheek is to believe that God is going to take up the sword and judge. So rather than justice and wrath being opposite to love, rather than justice and wrath being something that actually causes people to go and commit violence. It's actually something that in a very practical way, the belief in divine judgment serves to stop further violence. So, what does Paul say after that? Where does his argument go from here? All stand condemned, he says, before God. Everybody stands condemned. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That's the problem. That's the problem. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We all stand before God as unrighteous sinners. We all stand condemned. That's the problem. And so what does he say? Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. How are we to be saved? A just God cannot justify sinners. We hear that in Exodus, very clearly, he will by no means clear the guilty. How is a just God to justify sinners? As believers, we do not stand before God in our own righteousness. We stand in the pure, holy, complete, sure righteousness of our Savior. We cannot stand our own, on our own righteousness. We must stand on his. Are you still trying to stand on your own righteousness? Most Christians do. It's something that ebbs and flows. It's something that we have to remind ourselves again and again, just like the believers here in Romans, just like the Jews and the Gentiles who are trying to stand on their own righteousness. We have to remind ourselves daily that we cannot and that no, dear Christian, you must indeed stand in his. There is no other way. Verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does he say there? He says, that this righteousness that you have been given, this righteousness that you stand in, it's given as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. 
You can't even truly seek it without his help. No, it is a gift. And because it's a gift, you can't lose it because it's all of God. All of God. As we learn later, if you read on, also that no one may boast before him. No one may boast. No. You can't say that I'm favored by God because of something I did. I'm favored by God because of my theology. I'm favored by God because of my country, my political party. No, you can't say that. No. The only way, the only reason you can say that you are favored by God is because he has given you the gift of the righteousness of his son. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He goes on in verse 25. He says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation, that's a big word. It's a, it's a huge, like, $5 theological word. What does it mean? It can mean atonement. Or as one of my seminary professors said, it means the full turning away of wrath. The full turning away of wrath. Nothing left to do. All the wrath has been turned aside. God bears no wrath for you, Christian, anymore. Why? How? Because Jesus took your sin upon himself and went before the judgment seat of God on your behalf and he stood condemned in your place and bore the entirety of the wrath of God. That is why he has borne, sorry, that is why all the wrath of God has been turned away. He bore the wrath for you. So what do we do? What do we do now? How do we respond? We rest and we receive the gift. Stop trying to bolster your own righteousness. Stop putting your trust in your own work and your own worthiness. It won't work. It does nothing to improve your standing with God. In fact, if you are in Christ, your standing with God is already at the maximum because he sees Christ in you. You stand before the judge in the spotless righteousness of our dear Savior. Embrace that and remind yourself of it. Christian, God chose you. He chose you and gave you a gift. He elected you. Further on in the letter, we find that actually God elected you and gave you this gift before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he decided to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And then Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is God who justifies who then can condemn? Nobody. Nobody can condemn you. Christian, hear that again. Nobody can condemn you. Nor can anybody condemn your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian, are you stuck in a pattern of sin? Repent and believe in Christ for his forgiveness and his sufficiency know that that sin has already been borne by him on the cross. 
Have you sinned against a fellow believer? Seek their forgiveness and trust in Jesus that he has forgiven you for that too. Have you been grievously sinned against? Pray for them. Pray that God would be merciful to the person who sinned against you and save them if he hasn't yet. And also pray that if he chooses not to, if that is not his will, that he bring his justice swiftly so that the wake of their life doesn't spread more ruin and misery. Trust in his judgment. Trust in his judgment. Trust in his promise that he is the one who makes all things new. He is going to be the one who puts everything to right. It may seem slow in happening, but it will happen. That is what he has told us. And his words are true. Now, I leave you with just this, this thought from John Newton. Okay, we heard this on Thursday in, in our fellowship night. Sinclair Ferguson brought this out. and I think it's a really good way to think about your life as a Christian. And it kind of encapsulates everything that we've talked about here. John Newton, if you know him, he's the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace. He also wrote many other hymns. Now, he wasn't always a Christian. In fact, when he started out, he was a slave trader. And he was hostile, hostile to Christianity, hostile to the church. And he was converted kind of middle of his life. And he wrote his, his epitaph or his gravestone. And this is what it read. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, who was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Christian, that is your story too. God has saved you, pardoned you, restored you, and sent you out to preach the gospel and make disciples. Rest in his finished work. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we're just astounded. We're astounded by the fact that you would take pity on us, that you would see a sinful and broken people and claim us as your own. Lord, help us live every day in the light of the gospel, that gospel truth that we are sinful beyond all reason, and yet at the same time, because of the work of your son, you have made us righteous Amen.